0: Thank you for downloading this episode of A History of the World in a 100 Objects from BBC Radio 4. If you want to test the old cliché that an act of translation is always an act of betrayal, then the Internet Automated Translation Services will give you lots of happy ammunition. I fed into it the sentence which is the theme for this week's programmes. This week, I typed, we're spinning the globe, looking at some of the world's religions around 700 years ago and at how different cultures used objects to bring gods and humans nearer to each other. Once this sentence had been translated from English into French, then from French into Greek, and then from Greek back to English, it read, this week we turn ball that looks at certain of religions of world, this, there, at about 700 years, and the way which different cultures has adopted objects to bring more almost gods and humans from each other. It's an amusingly crude exercise, but when it comes to translating complex ideas from a lost culture with no written language, we can't be confident of doing much better as we work our way through layers of later interpretation by people with quite different ways of thinking. Uh, 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 <sing> <sing> to get anywhere near an original understanding of this program's object, we have to go through a filter of two later cultures with two different languages and even then we're not quite sure of where we stand. It's an object that's always intrigued me, and I'm less and less sure that I understand it. It's the statue of a woman, from what is now northern Mexico, but which, around 1400, was the land of the Huastec people.
1: It's absolutely essential that she should be female. One of the aspects of human experience that all myths and all religions address is sex. A history of the world in a hundred objects. Sculpture of Huastec Goddess. A stone statue made in Mexico between the 10th and 15th century.
0: Everybody knows about the Aztecs and how the great Aztec empire was conquered by the Spaniards in the 1520s. We hear much less about the people that the Aztecs themselves had conquered to build their empire. One of the most interesting peoples subjugated by the Aztecs were their northern neighbours, the Huastecs. We know that the Huastecs lived on Mexico's northern Gulf coast, in the area around modern Veracruz and that between the 10th and the 15th centuries they had a flourishing city culture. But around 1400, this prosperous world was overwhelmed by the aggressive Aztec state in the south, and the Huastec ruling class was effectively liquidated. There's very little now that would enable us to reconstruct the world and the ideas of the Huastecs. There's no trace of any writing, and all we have to go on is Aztec accounts of the people they had conquered, as transmitted through the Spanish after they, in their turn, had liquidated the Aztecs. So if we want the Washtec to speak to us directly, we have to go to the objects they left behind. These are their only documents. And among the most eloquent of them are groups of highly distinctive stone statues. Here, in the Mexico gallery at the British Museum, I'm looking at the statue of a woman. Not just one woman, in fact, because although she's in prime position... She's presiding over a group of companions, three sandstone sisters, all carved to the same design. Our statue is about five foot high, so more or less life-size, but she's not at all life-like. She looks as though she's been shaped by a giant pastry cutter. Contours of the body are straight lines, the surface is flat. You might almost imagine that she's a huge gingerbread woman. When you step to the side you can see that she's carved out of a very thin piece of sandstone. Edge on, she's less than six inches thick. She folds her hands over her stomach and her arms are held out from her sides, making two triangular spaces. In fact, she's really just a series of geometric shapes. Her breasts are perfect hemispheres and below the waist, she wears a rectangular skirt which falls flat and undecorated to the plinth. This is a lady of straight lines and hard edges, clearly not somebody you'd choose to mess with. But she does have two humanising aspects. Her small head is unexpectedly animated. She appears to be looking up and to the side towards something and her lips are open as though she may even be speaking. And below her breasts are the only surface detail on the entire body, curved lines of sagging stone flesh. Signs certainly of maturity, possibly of maternity, which has led many people to believe that she may be a mother goddess. We know virtually nothing about the Huastec mother goddess, but we do know that for the conquering Aztecs, she was the same being as their own mother goddess, Tzlatel Now, you might imagine that all mother goddesses have a pretty straightforward job description, ensuring fertility and seeing everybody safely into adulthood. But, as the cultural historian Marina Warner points out, it's often much more complicated than that. It's important not to see that all mother goddesses are the same.
1: A lot of times the mother goddesses are related to the spring, to vegetation, to that kind of fertility, not just human-animal fertility. Then, in terms of fertility, you enter the area of extreme danger because the great threat to humankind is, of course, the death of either mothers or children in childbirth. That's been a universal constant in human history until fairly recently. And also a very strong sense that this contact with the danger of giving birth, of life, of perpetuating life, will actually rush you very close to pollution. In Christianity, that's very, very strong. You know, Augustine said we're born between feces and urine. I mean, he was very sort of worried about the animal aspects of actual parturition, human parturition. Mother goddesses, on the whole, have to help human beings confront this anxiety, this danger of pollution, that death and birth can be
0: mixed up together. The simple fact is that childbirth and infancy are always very messy affairs. To achieve even a minimum level of hygiene means devising systems for coping with filth. And mother goddesses have to deal with filth on a cosmic scale. So it's not at all surprising that the name Tlazolteotl literally means, in the Aztec language, filth goddess. She was a figure of fertility, vegetation and renewal the ultimate green goddess, transforming organic waste and excrement into healthy new life, guaranteeing the great cycle of natural regeneration. This is a goddess that gets her hands dirty. And, according to Aztec myth, not just her hands. Another of her names is Eater of Filth. She consumes dirt and purifies it. So, if we can read our goddess in the same light as the Aztecs, that's perhaps, disconcertingly, why her mouth is open and her eyes are rolling upwards. Just as Tlatel Teotl was held to consume actual filth and thus restore life and goodness, she did the same in moral terms. She was, the Aztecs told the Spaniards, the goddess who received confessions of sexual sin. One recited before her all vanities... One spread before her all unclean works, however ugly, however grave. Indeed, all was exposed, told before her. To the Spanish friar Bernardino de Sahagún, this seems an uncanny parallel to Christian views on sexual sin and confession. We have to wonder at this point how far the Spaniards are seeing the Aztec and through them the Huastec goddesses, in terms of their own traditions, especially of Mary. But the Christian tradition had removed Mary from any connection with sex, and the Spanish were disturbed by Tlatel Teotl's inherent engagement with what they saw as filth. Sayagún deplores the fact that she is also mistress of lust and debauchery. And the Aztecs, in their turn, despised their Washtec subjects as hopelessly licentious. So it's pretty hard to come to any firm view about our statue's meaning, And now, some scholars are even questioning whether she's a goddess at all. Back to the evidence we have got, the statue in the gallery. Her most striking feature is a huge fan-shaped headdress. It's about ten times the size of her head, and although part of it's broken off, you can see that, like the rest of her, it's conceived as an assemblage of geometric shapes. In the middle, resting directly on her head, is a plain oblong slab, sitting on that... An unadorned cone, and both are framed in a great semicircle of what look like stone ostrich feathers. They may be feathers, they may be bark wood, but the original paint that would have let us know has long gone. A headdress like this must have been a totally unambiguous statement of who this figure was. Maddeningly, it's a statement that we can't read now with any confidence. The Aztec expert Kim Richter gives us her more secular understanding of the statue.
2: I've argued that the sculptures represent the Huastec elite who dressed up with these fancy costume elements that were actually common within the international elite of Mesoamerica. I've linked the Huastec headdresses to similar types of headdresses found in other regions. I think it's The fashion of the day, but also so much more. It's not unlike, for example, a Gucci bag today. You see it in wealthy people all over the world. It's a symbol of status, and it symbolizes the connections between these different regions of the globe today. And these headdresses had a very similar function. They showed to their own people that they were part of this larger Mesoamerican culture.
0: Kim Richter may, of course, be right, and these statues may simply be representations of the local elite. But I find it hard to believe that these geometric naked female statues are merely aristocratic family likenesses, even of the most ritualised sort. We know that groups of them stood high up above their communities on artificial mounds where people could congregate for ceremonies and processions. But it's hard to be certain about anything in the face of our statue, and sadly, there's nobody now who can enlighten us. Kim Richter again.
2: I don't think the sculptures really have much meaning to local people there today. So when I was in the field and I spoke to Indigenous people, they were interested and curious, and they wanted to learn more, but they didn't know anything about these sculptures. I heard a report that in one of the sites the farmers would shoot at sculptures and use them as target practice.
0: This programme has turned out to be more about what we don't know than what we do. Our statue's commanding physical presence speaks to us with peremptory directness, but of all the objects in our history, she is perhaps the hardest to read confidently through the filters of the historical record. In the next programme, we'll also be trying to reconstruct a lost spiritual world, but there's a lot more evidence to go on. will be in one of the last places on Earth to be settled by human beings, Easter Island, Rapa Nui, and with some of the most instantly recognisable sculpture in the world. You can see the object described in this programme close up on the A History of the World website, as well as hundreds of others from museums across the UK. And if you have an object with a history to tell... Why not add it to our growing collection? Find all this at bbc.co.uk/a-history-of-the-world.